Hi, Doxology. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle, and I'm a member here. Um, I'm going to be doing the scripture reading tonight, which is going to be in Hebrews, and we're in chapter 10, and we'll be reading verses 26 through 39. Um, so I invite you to open your Bible to chapter Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you are welcome to use one of the Bibles in the pews in front of you. We just ask that you do return it uh, when the service is done. Those belong to Christ Church. Um, if you would like a, a Bible that you can take home with you, we do have Bibles, these light blue Bibles up front. You are welcome to take one as our gift to you. Uh, so again, it's going to be Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Kyle. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you. For those of you who are new, a warm welcome to you. Uh, regardless of what your spiritual background is, maybe you've been coming to church since your parents forced you to as a little kid. Uh, maybe you're just exploring the faith. We're really glad that you're here. And we are walking through Hebrews up until Easter is when we're going to finish up the letter. And what Hebrews is about, uh, each week we're saying this, so if we remember anything from this series, it's just that Hebrews is about, it says, persevere in faith, draw near to Christ, our present help, and then do it together. So persevere, draw near, do it together. And what we're saying this evening is to do this in light of the idea or a theme of having an eternal perspective. Eternal perspective. And you know, it was interesting. So John, who was up here leading worship uh, a minute ago, he moved here about six or seven months ago. And after he was here for two to three months, we were just talking, having a conversation. He said, you know, what's interesting is since I've been here, you know, he says he's lived, you know, in a couple different places in the States. And he said, here what's different is like in other places I've lived, people have various reasons for not believing, or even if they go to church, you know, for not taking the Christian life really seriously. But here what I've noticed is the main reason people have for not taking the following of Jesus seriously is they're too busy to believe. And I, I thought that was an interesting uh, and insightful observation. I mean, there's been more than one person I've spoken to here um, who, who've said things to me like, you know, I, I know that, yeah, if the gospel is true, it matters, but right now I'm just really busy. And as I was thinking about this for 
you know, not just people outside the church, but for you all. This is a fast-paced, high-pressure area. A lot of you guys have high-demanding jobs. A lot of you have really deep longings for a love life, whether you're married or not. And what Hebrews is helping us with here is there's other things that we often get caught up in doing. You know, just the, the hamster wheel of, of career and traffic and romance and all those things, they matter. Uh, but what's most important is that we keep our eyes fixated on that which matters most and having an eternal perspective. And what we'll see here, is, and hopefully you guys see as well, is when we have an eternal perspective, that actually gives us greater clarity and motivation for doing all the other things that we do here anyway. And so we'll look at this idea of why it's important to keep an eternal perspective under these three headings. So first we'll see it's an import, important to keep an eternal perspective, one, because of God's judgment, two, uh, because of an eternal reward, and then number three, we need to keep an eternal perspective because of Christ's presence with us. So God's judgment, eternal reward, and then three, Christ's present with us. Um, all these reasons why we need an eternal perspective. And so let's start with uh, verse 26 through verse, 32, verse 31, and we'll just read the first two verses to begin. So, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the, the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So this first section, 26 through 31, is all about judgment. If you're here visiting for the first time, you've chosen one of the top two heaviest passages in Hebrews that we're looking at. Um, but you know, this theme of judgment, it's a recurring theme in the scriptures. Uh, and in fact, Jesus taught about judgment more than any other biblical author put together. And so it really matters that we look at it and that we don't ignore it. So just a heads up, the first half of this message is going to feel more weighty because the first half of this passage is weighty. The second half will be very comforting, okay? And so as we think about this idea of judgment, even if you've heard about it for a long time, even if you feel fairly settled about it, I think that most of us have a fairly reductionist vision of what judgment is. And Here's what I mean, and here I'm, I'm drawing from a pastor in our network, Hunter Beaumont, who gave a helpful teaching on this. So when you look at Jesus' teaching on judgment, which is everywhere, uh, the primary frame Jesus uses to talk about judgment is sorting. Judgment is a sorting. And so two predominant places you see this are Matthew 13 and Matthew 25, where Jesus uses vivid imagery, for example, like separating bad fish from good fish and separating wheat from weeds. And Jesus' point here is that in order to get the world that we all long for, or put it another way, in order for God's kingdom to come in full, which is the world we all want, in order for us to have a world where we don't wound other people and they don't wound us, where we have zero anxiety or depression, where there's zero racism or poverty, like everyone wants this world. In order for this to happen, judgment needs to take place which is a separating out of the bad from the good and a reordering of all that is disordered. Like judgment needs to happen to get the world we need. And here's the thing is you already believe this. And I would argue that everybody in this city believes it, you know, whether they count themselves a follower of Jesus or not. And so here are a, a couple of examples. So if you're going to have guests over for dinner— I assume that most of you, before guests come over, 
you want to create a peaceable, beautiful kingdom for your guests to show up to. So you clean your kitchen sink, and you tidy up if there's any dirt in your living room. If you have any, you know, piles of clutter or trinkety-looking things, you hide them so that when people come over, they're, oh, you have a peaceable, beautiful kingdom. to You've executed judgment on your home, right? You've removed all the bad, kept the good, and reordered that which was disordered. Or put it another way, one of the, and I, I'm on social media, so I'm not, you know, like denouncing social media, but one of the, I think one of the few, one of the few good things that social media is useful for is social media is proof that everybody believes in judgment. So Twitter, it's an ever-growing compendium of people judging the bad that they want out of the world, right? The bad ideas they want out of the world, Sometimes the types of people they want out of the world. And Instagram is an ever-growing collection of everyone's vision of the peaceable kingdom, what they want in the world, right? You look at anyone's Instagram feed, and generally it's going to be a picture of like what they, what they think is attractive and good and beautiful. And these are pictures of judgment. And if you've ever prayed or thought something to the effect of, you know, if God is so good and if he's so powerful and loving, like, why doesn't he, this, is a, this, is, should, this should be a question you have, right? Why doesn't he use his power and his goodness to stop the pain and the abuse and the suffering that's taking place in our world? What you're actually doing there is asking God to judge that's what you're, you're asking him to remove the bad, right, and keep the good and reorder all that is disordered. And so here's where we get tripped up. As we think about, okay, if to get the world we all want, God's kingdom to come in full, God needs to judge. This means, you know, since human beings are the primary source of the pain in the world, then what that means is the bad people need to be taken out and the good people need to remain. And this is a natural intuition. And I think even if you're here and you're saying, well, I know that's not, you know how the gospel works. Just even subconsciously, we can think this is how God operates, right? And we, we can be, like, lose humility, begin to feel prideful. And so we, it's natural to think that the gooder and the badder out because this is how it works in every other domain. So I think even academia, right? If you get good grades, you go to a good school, and you get to go to a good job, you, know, you get good connections to your school, and the, quote, bad people are left behind. Our whole political system is rooted on this premise of good people and bad people. So we have bad people in power. And what we need to do is get the good people in and kick the bad people out, right? And so we yell about this on Facebook and families divide over this and churches divide over this and political parties spend hundreds of millions on campaigns to this tune of the gooder and the badder out. Right? Religion operates on the premise, the good are in, the bad are out. Oh, and of course, whatever religion you're a part of, you're a part of the good people. And where Jesus is so different, as he says, it's not that simple. And he's both more offensive and more loving and surprising with how he talks about judgment and how God's kingdom is going to come in full. And so where Jesus is offensive, as he says, if it's a matter of the good people stay in and the bad people go out, then every human is in trouble because we're all bad people. And so, so see the phrase here in verse 27, a fury, of, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Uh, another word for adversaries is enemy. 
And something that Jesus teaches and the New Testament author teaches is every single human, even if you're a relatively ethical person, is an enemy of God. Uh, insofar as in some way, and there's a spectrum here, but everybody contributes to the unraveling of the good order that God has created. And everyone in our heart of hearts resists the lordship of God over lives, even though we owe our very existence to him. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the intense relational nature of sin. Like even if you're a very good person and you ignore God in your day to day. And so the problem is if God comes in and just removes all the enemies, then all of us are in trouble. And that's the offense of the gospel. But Jesus is also more loving and surprising in that even though he's the very one who's coming to execute judgment, what he does is he goes to the cross, and on the cross is where he's treated as an adversary or an enemy of God. And then he's raised to a new kind of life so that when you unite yourself to Jesus by faith, the condemnation he received on the cross gets passed from you to him, and the new life that he receives in his resurrection also gets credited to you. And then you get brought into God's kingdom where when it comes in full, it will be pain-proof and death-proof. And this is why an eternal perspective matters, and this is why your life matters. Because the purpose of a human life is to be reconciled to God through the death of Jesus and to be given new life through the resurrection of Jesus. And then God uses every relationship, every moment, every little thing you do in your work to disciple you deeper and deeper into his kingdom so that when Jesus returns, you're ready. Our entire lives are setting us on a trajectory to either be ready for God's kingdom when it comes in full, full and free for those who trust in Jesus, or to not be ready for God's kingdom when it comes in full. And so the difference here isn't between good and bad, and the difference isn't between adversary and not adversary. The difference is between, we're all adversaries. It's the adversaries who lay ourselves down before Jesus and say, we need you to come into God's family. And the adversaries who forever say, no, I'm going to live for myself. And so as we think about a, a couple implications of this, and I know this, is, this may feel heavy, uh, but I, I want to respect you guys by giving the passage the weight it deserves and also not trying to make this lighter than it actually is. And so hopefully you see, maybe you're not even fully there, but hopefully you see in some way that judgment is needed to get the world we want, but also the necessary implications. And so the first thing is, this, this is why it's so crucial for every single person to take this seriously um, because what Scripture is clearly teaching here and Jesus teaches here, and I take no pleasure in, in saying this, but what it's saying is hell is serious and it's real because God is good and he's loving and just. But the invitation of Christ is to come because heaven is even more real and more seriously beautiful because it is ultimate reality. And you see here this line of, because um, I know a lot of folks get confused by this, and there's similar language in Hebrews 4. How much worse punishment, verse 29, do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant? Profane means to defile. So what this is saying is one of the reasons why rejecting Christ is so serious is because to reject Jesus is to essentially be no different then the good people, you know, a lot of the religious leaders and church leaders were good people in his day. 
that when they became so offended by his claims to be God and to come to forgive the world for sin, they rejected him and shouted, crucify him. And so if we reject Jesus, what this teaching is that we're essentially no different than the people in Jesus' day who wanted to put him to death. And so Jesus' death, it, I mean, it's super binary, and that's not a popular word in our modern climate, but it will either free us from guilt completely when we come to Jesus, or it will condemn us as murderers if we reject him. So that's all of us, okay? Because don't think this is, just, oh, this is for the pagans out there. Like, Hebrews is written to a church. Okay, so we all need to hear this. And, and second is, as we think about why we need to keep an eternal perspective, because our entire lives are setting us on a trajectory to be ready for the kingdom of God when it comes in full. Notice this passage comes right after the section, obviously, that comes right after the section before it, which is on community, right? Talking about the importance of community, we need to encourage one another, verse 25, all the more until we see the day drawing near. Then verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately, this is one reason why even we saw the new members getting inducted this evening is so beautiful because what they're doing is they're taking this seriously, the reality that we need one another to not be blind and we need one another to course correct us when we start to become numb to Jesus or living out of step with Jesus. Because this is a privilege that we get to do with each other is to help one another prepare for God's kingdom when it comes in full because your life really matters. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing. Your life matters as you keep an eternal perspective because of God's judgment. That's the weighty and serious part. And now because this author is a good pastor, he now comes alongside us and he gives us a lot of comfort. Okay, so we need to keep an eternal perspective, not just because of judgment, which everyone needs, um, but we need to keep an eternal perspective because of an eternal reward. And so let's read verse 32 to 34. <clears throat> But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And so what he's doing here is he's saying, don't let verse 36 through 31 let you lose all your confidence. Okay, I'm, he's giving a hard but good and necessary truth, but then he moves on to say, here's why you, you should have reasons for assurance. Okay, whether you're exploring the faith, the goodness of Jesus, or if you're a Christian, why you can have assurance. And he, what he highlights here is the suffering that they underwent as believers. And these believers who are hearing Hebrews preach to them, they lived in a culture more hostile to Christianity than we do today. Um, they were often publicly mocked. They were often publicly beaten and humiliated. Uh, and this was either from the Roman government itself or from their prior families and communities because many of the believers that Hebrews is being preached to, they, they were Jewish converts. And so a lot of them lost. Their, they were cut off from their former families and communities when they accepted Jesus. And so he's, he's reminding them of, you know, because you underwent, even accepting the plundering of their property, getting things stolen from them, visiting those in prison, right? Even to visit a Christian in prison, could then get you locked up or condemned or ostracized. I don't know if, uh, if you're all high school did this, but when I was in high school, there was something called the mixer dance where upperclassmen would ask lowerclassmen to a dance. And so uh, when I was in 10th grade, uh, for reasons unbeknownst to me, a group of popular 12th grade girls in invited me and a number of my friends who are all 10th graders to this mixer dance. 
And so we, you know, we said yes. And so on the evening of this mixer, the, my date, she picks me up along with a few other of the couples, you know, that were in this group together. And so, you know, you go to, typically you go to dinner first and then you go to the dance after. And on our way to dinner, the, the SUV, it goes off the way to the restaurant and she parks it in front of the woods. I'm like, what's going on? Is this, am I, this is kind of Blair Witch Project? And you're like, what's happening here? And so we, we go into the woods and there's a, you know, there's a big group of us, you know, 15 or 16 or so. And, you know, all I'll say is that a device started getting passed around that you use to inhale illegal substances through. And it gets to me. And I mean, I was a super just innocent in some ways and just very naive. I didn't even know like how to use this thing. And it gets to me and I just try to pass it to the next person. And a few people around me, they laughed because they thought I was kidding. And then they realized I was serious. And then before I know it, I, you know, the, the stares of everybody in the circle becomes palpable. And finally someone says, you know, Steve, come on. You're like, why won't you do it? Like, it's just, it's just a bit of fun. And I'm stuttering. I'm just like, oh, well, you know, because I'm a Christian and I don't think I'm supposed to do this. And, you know, my face goes beet red. And, you know, I can just, I can feel the scorn of everyone around me. And I pass it to the next person. You know, everyone's attitude toward me for the rest of the evening was noticeably different. And I just remember in that moment thinking, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, like in that moment thinking, I don't know that following Jesus is worth it. Because my embarrassment feels so real right now. And Jesus feels so distant. And you know, can I do this for another two years in high school, let alone university? And after that? And so what the author is doing here is he's coming alongside us and saying, here's why it's worth it to suffer for the name of Jesus. Here's why it's worth it to obey in the name of Jesus. And so look what he says in verse 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, that's obeying God, you may receive what is promised, i.e. a great reward. And here, what the author is doing is echoing the rest of the New Testament and Jesus' own teaching that, that simply the fact that those who live faithfully for Jesus will be rewarded by God on the last day. And, you know, a, a couple places we see this. Uh, one is in Luke 6.23. Uh, where Jesus says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for great is your reward. And then 1 Corinthians 3, 8, each person will receive his own reward according to his labor, meaning in proportion to your labor, you receive a reward. And depending on your church background, this language may make you feel really uncomfortable. Uh, but what it, it's not a saved by works theology. What it is, it's just, it's the simple reality that after God saves you by grace, not by anything you do, he delights to honor those who live for him. And this should be a powerful motivator for obedience and a powerful motivator for suffering for Jesus, especially, you know, as we think about this year, uh, the theme being witness. I know a number of you are in work environments where a lot of the teaching of Jesus are wildly unpopular, uh, even for those of you who think, you know, when, when it comes to obeying Jesus, you think, I can, I can barely get my shoes on to get out the door in the morning. You know, I don't feel like I'm, you know, this amazing Christian that's going to be one of the people up on a platform, you know, on that final day. Because what Jesus teaches in, in Luke 12, among other places, he says, 
you know, those who, pub- those who acknowledge me before other people, I will acknowledge. The Son of Man will acknowledge on the final day. And here's what this means, is motivation for suffering for Jesus and motivation for obedience in the Christian life isn't fear of, uh, isn't fear of condemnation. Motivation for obedience in the Christian life is this. It's the smallest act of suffering for the name of Jesus. The most modest act of obedience to God. Maybe that no one else sees. The most modest life done for God that the world writes off as insignificant will not fail to receive anything less than public acknowledgement and and commendation by the Son of Man. Jesus is so good. He doesn't only redeem the unworthy, but he delights to honor you when you do the smallest acts that only he could have worked in you to begin with. He's a great Savior. And even more so as you think about when you will be publicly acknowledged by Jesus on the final day, who this person is that's commending you. All of Hebrews 1 through 10, okay, leading up to this passage, has been about the supremacy of Jesus. And then now read verse, 30, read verse 32 through 34 again and think about who does this remind you of other than Jesus? Jesus endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, the worst kind, when he was stripped and whipped and mocked. Jesus sometimes being partners with those who treated, that's you and me. For Jesus had compassion on those in prison, not those behind bars of metal, but you behind bars of your sin and self-centeredness. Jesus joyfully accepted the plundering, not of his property, but of his dignity and his life. Why? Because Jesus knew he had a better possession, an abiding one. What was Jesus' possession? It wasn't heaven. He already had that. It was you. And so, the reason for your life, and the reason why your life matters, isn't because of what you're accomplishing or not accomplishing in your career. The reason your life matters isn't because of something someone may have once said to you or has not said to you. The reason your life matters is because Jesus says your life matters. And so keep an eternal perspective because God is judging the world and it will be a bright and beautiful day for those who belong to Jesus and the invitation is free. And keep an eternal perspective because God delights to honor you for the smallest act of faith done in his name. But maybe most of all, keep an eternal perspective because the very one who exhorts you to keep an eternal perspective is the very one who knows firsthand what it's like to suffer, who knows firsthand what it's like to undergo the most severe of trial, and then to come out the other side so he doesn't only rule you as your king but gives you all the compassion and sympathy of a brother and then invites you to draw near to him so that he will give you mercy and strength to help in time of need.
and then at the end reward you for only what he himself could have worked in you to begin with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for loving us, loving us enough to give us a, a weighty message uh, and also a really encouraging message. And uh, I pray that you will help each person here to persevere to the end, uh, for us to see the beauty of Jesus in new ways, um, to be grateful uh, for him being judged in our place uh, so that we can have new life in him. I pray that you will comfort uh, anyone here this evening who may be feeling discouraged, who may be feeling they aren't like they aren't doing enough for you, uh, and to remind them uh, just how delighted you are in them, uh, even if it's just the tiniest, smallest things that they do. Thank you for these gifts that we have in the gospel, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.